Thank you, Gene. We're in Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 to 14 today. Children, ages 3 through 2nd grade, you're dismissed to Children's Church. I know you've been waiting for that, right? You've been waiting for that announcement. <laughs> We're going to be talking this morning about making the cut. So there's an Amazon original TV series entitled Making the Cut. <clears throat> It's a fashion competition series hosted by Heidi Klum and Tim Gunn, featuring 10 talented entrepreneurs and designers from around the world who are ready to take their emerging brands to the next level and become the newest global phenomenon. Now, the series started into double meaning. The fashion designers are cutting and sewing material together in order to create their designs. If their design does not please the judges, then they don't make the cut to the next round, right? To the next level. And this process continues until there's just one designer remaining who has made the cut. Now, I was thinking about all of this, and I was thinking, wow, you know, there's someone else that we know personally that's made the cut, right? And he's actually with us this morning. And I just want to, you know, is it private first class? I don't know what your title is. Private first class, Noah Brown. He's with us. And so, hey, let's just give him a round of applause this morning. We appreciate your service to our country. Uh, he made the cut through boot camp, and, and he's here, uh, obviously, um, because his, his grandmother passed away. But we're glad that you were able to be with us today and that you made that cut. Thank you for your service. Thanks. Well, um, perhaps this doesn't come, to, come as news to you, but fashion's not my thing. Right? Some of you might look at my outfits and you say, yeah, we agree. We agree. Fashion's not Pastor Stewart's thing. That's okay. That's, that, I'm all right with that. I've never watched any of the episodes of Making the Cut. Um, I just came across it when I was preparing for the message, and I was like, oh, I was just looking for different things, illustrations, and I'm like, ah, oh, I didn't even know there was a TV show. But, you know, I played baseball growing up, and I loved playing baseball. And over in Shippensburg, they had the minor league, the major league, and the senior division. And when I was in the major league, that middle one, I don't know, I was a young person, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years old, somewhere in there. Um, I got chosen. I made the cut for the mini all-stars. And so I got to play in the mini all-stars, and it was during one of those mini all-star games that I, I always used a wooden bat. I didn't use aluminum bats when I played baseball. I just liked the wooden bats. And I hit this ball, and it, it was over at Norcross Field over in Shippensburg, and the ball was going and going and going, and it hit the top of the fence and bounced inside. That was as close as I ever got to getting a home run. And I'm not a fast runner, so I only made it to second. <clears throat> so... But then as uh, playing in the senior division, I got chosen for the all-star team. <clears throat> Again, I made the cut for the all-star team. Not the many all-stars, the all-stars. And I wasn't even able to play on that team because we had uh, a vacation to Florida that had been planned during that time. So I made the cut, but I didn't get to play. Now, when I got to high school in Shippensburg, as a sophomore in high school, I tried out for the baseball team there at high school, and I, I didn't make the cut. But I wasn't too sad about that because I did participate in two things that year. Um, that my girlfriend participated in too. So see, this wasn't, I wasn't so sad because I got to run track and we got to, uh, you know, be together at the track meets and then I was in The Sound of Music, uh, the musical at the, at the school and I played Kurt, one of the children, and uh, my girlfriend was in The Sound of Music as well. And so uh, those things all worked out okay for me. I was all right not making the baseball team. But I played a lot of softball, uh, church softball after that and uh, enjoyed that. <clears throat> but I want you to just take a moment this morning to think about 
uh, a time when you either made the cut or didn't make the cut. So just, just envision that in your mind this morning, and then answer a couple of questions in your own mind. What made the difference? What, what was it that made the difference? Was there something specific that you did that enabled you to make the cut? Or maybe something that you did that, uh, that caused you not to make the cut? And so I want us to be thinking about that today because what's going on in this passage of Scripture in Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 to 14, the Lord asked Abram to walk before him and be blameless and to uphold his covenant of circumcision to show that Abram's descendants were set apart and single-hearted. You see, Abram needed to make the cut. He needed to make this cut in order to be in a covenant relationship with God. He needed to walk before God and be blameless, and then he needed to observe the covenant of circumcision. And through Abraham's example, we learn today that we must live single-hearted lives of integrity. That's what it looks like for us today. And we're going to be talking about that as we get through this passage of Scripture. That's how we will make the cut in our relationship with the Lord. In a covenant relationship with Him is to have the single-hearted lives of integrity. And so as we think about that, would you just bow your heads with me as we commit this message to the Lord. Lord, we come to you today. And we thank you for how you have just uh, worked in my heart and mind through this passage of Scripture just this week, Lord. And I, I pray today that, that I would honor you and glorify you as I share your message for your people. I pray, Lord God, that, that it would just transform our hearts and our minds today. I pray, Lord God, that the applications that you've laid on my heart this week will just reach uh, each individual that, Lord God, you would be honored and glorified, that you would transform us by your word. Lord, that's our desire. That's why we're here today, to be challenged, to be comforted, to be convicted. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that work through your Holy Spirit. And we just ask this in your precious Son's name. Amen. As we come to this passage today, there's really just two points. Command that we're going to see in verses 1 to 3a, and then from 3b all the way to 14, it's the covenant, but it's a two-part covenant that we'll look at. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you, let's look at verses 1 to the beginning of verse 3 as we talk about the command. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down. And so we see that the Lord appears to Abram. There's a 13-year gap or span between Genesis 16, 16, that's the end, end of chapter 16, and Genesis 17, 1. Now, some commentators, some, some scholars believe that God was silent in those 13 years. I don't know if he was or not. We're not told. We, you know, Moses writing this, he just skips from this one uh, part about Ishmael being born and then jumps right into when he's like 13 years old. So 13 years later, it's been 24 years since Abram was, has migrated to Canaan. He's now 99 years old and perhaps he was living with the belief that Ishmael is the heir that the Lord had promised. And so Wolke reminds us that Ishmael, aged 12 or 13, is entering manhood. God must make clear to Abraham that Ishmael is not the blessing carrier. So the time is nearing for God's miraculous power to be revealed. That's why he's saying some of the things that he's saying here. He's like, listen, you may believe, Abram, that Ishmael might be the, 
you know, the, the covenant child, but he's not. And I want to explain that to you again today as he comes and appears before Abram. We see God's name here. It says God Almighty. In Hebrew, it's El Shaddai. And the Lord is reminding Abram that he is all-powerful. Nothing is impossible for him. Kyle and Dillish tell us this. The name which Jehovah thus gave to himself was to be a pledge that in spite of his own body now dead, talking about Abram, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, God could and would give him the promised innumerable posterity. That's what he's talking about here. That leads us to our first principle that God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And God was reassuring Abram that even though what seemed humanly impossible, that he and Sarah having a baby together was not impossible for him. He's like, this isn't impossible for me, Abram. You might think that you're 99 and Sarah's, what, 89 at this point? That this is completely impossible, but it's not impossible with me. And so I want to ask you this question today. Is there something you're currently facing that seems humanly impossible? Do you believe that God is able to do the impossible? What do you truly believe about God? Too often we show our true beliefs about God when difficult situations arise. We become depressed or anxious about our health, an upcoming surgery, our doctor's appointment, a test at school, the restoration of a relationship, an issue at work. Like vaccination mandates. Do you believe that God is all-powerful? He can, he can take care of that for you? Maybe if you're in school and they're requiring masks, do you think that God's all-powerful? He can take care of that for you? Man, when we get in these difficult situations, that's when we truly know what we believe in about God. And then as we talk with others, it kind of comes out, well, I don't know, I, I might lose my job. Or this relationship, there's no way it can ever be restored. Or I'm probably going to die, right? <laughs> Whatever I got, the surgery that I'm going to have, I'm not going to make it through. And so we, we come up to all these things, and we can't see a way through this difficulty, but God can. The situation we're currently facing has not come as a surprise to him. Because in addition to being all-powerful, God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. And the question we need to ask ourselves is whether or not we truly believe God is all-knowing and all-powerful. And if we believe that, then we can rest and be at peace, even if we don't know how everything is going to work out. Isn't that wonderful? To know that we can have that kind of peace in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of difficulties, because God is all-powerful and he's all-knowing. And he can take care of us. And so maybe that's a step you need to take today. It's on the back of your communication card, and it's to reaffirm my belief in God's ability to know everything and do anything by trusting him with my current situation. Maybe that's just what you need to do today. You just need, and you can pause right now. You don't have to keep listening to me. You can just talk to God. And you can tell him that today. I'm reaffirming this today, God. And we'll see Abram's reaction and what he believed about God in just a moment. There were two obligations that God was asking of Abram at this point. He says, I want you to walk before me. This phrase has the idea of a servant faithfully serving and being devoted to a king or a superior. And from a spiritual perspective, it has the idea of living our lives in such a way that shows we are fully committed to the Lord, recognizing that he is always with us. That's what he's talking about here. 
It's living our lives single-heartedly for the Lord. And then the second obligation is that he was to be blameless. Now, we must never equate being blameless with being sinless. That's not what the Lord's talking about here for Abram. He's not saying, I'm expecting you to walk before me and not sin. He says, I want you to walk before me and be blameless. The Hebrew word signifies wholeness of relationship and integrity rather than no sin. He says, That's what you want. I want you to be a man of integrity as you walk before me. I like what Baldwin says. The call is for wholeheartedness. For Abram, holiness was to be an intrinsic part of his life as one whom God had called, chosen, and justified. He was just supposed to live wholeheartedly with holiness. It's this pursuit of holiness. That's what we've been talking about this whole year as our, as our theme for the year is the pursuit of holiness. That's what God's desiring of us as we walk before him. And so principle two is simply this. God's desire is that his people live single-hearted lives of integrity. We need to be fully devoted to our relationship with the Lord. We need to be pursuing holiness each day. We need to be striving in our ongoing task of sanctification, becoming more like Christ. We're to take up our cross daily and follow him. And that just takes us to our big idea again. We must live single-hearted lives of integrity. And when we live that way, we will experience the Lord's blessing just like Abram did. There were two outcomes then to these two obligations. Abram experienced two outcomes as a result of living a single-hearted life of integrity. The Lord confirmed his covenant with Abram, and the Lord once again promised to make him into a great nation. Those were the two outcomes. And there's only one reaction or response to having the Lord appear to us and confirm his covenant with us. And we see it in Abraham. He models it for us. He falls face down before the Lord. And our third principle today comes from Warren Wearsby. It's, I'm just quoting him. The secret of a perfect walk before God is a personal worship of God. Isn't that a great statement? I, I thought, I can't even, I can't improve on that. The secret of a perfect walk before God is a personal worship of God. And that's exactly what Abram's doing. He's like, boom. God appears to him, says, I want you to walk before me in blame and be blameless. Boom, I'm on, the, I'm on my face before the Lord. That's his reaction. A perfect walk is not one without flaws, but rather a sincere, wholly devoted commitment to God. A lifestyle that reflects a daily, ongoing submission to the Lordship of Christ. And when the Lord speaks to us through his word, through prayer, and through other believers, our response should be to fall face down before the Lord in genuine and sincere worship. A couple of questions. Are you living a lifestyle that reflects a daily, ongoing submission to Jesus Christ? Are you wholly devoted to the Lord? When's the last time you've fallen face down in worship, to the Lord, in worship of the Lord? And maybe, maybe you're not physically able to do that, but have you done that in your heart? If you just, whether you're sitting somewhere and you're just like, Lord, in my heart, you know, I am face down before you in worship of you because you've spoken to me. So the second next step today is just simply this, to literally fall face down before the Lord in worship when he speaks to me through his word, through prayer and others. That's, that should be the only reaction, the only response to God appearing before us and speaking to us. Abram models well for us how we should respond to a supernatural encounter with the Lord. And perhaps Abram's still prostrated before the Lord while the Lord shares the two-part covenant with him. And we see that in verses uh, 3b through 14. 
we're going to first see God's part, and then we're going to see Abram's part. God's part we see in verses 3b through 8. Look at those verses with me, if you would. This is what God says. And God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. So we see five promises from God in in these verses. The first one is this, I will make you very fruitful. God promises, uh, God's promises that Abram and Sarai will have a child together. He says, You're, I'm going to make you very fruitful. And though Ishmael and Isaac, and I'm sorry, through Ishmael and Isaac and their offspring, Abram's descendants will grow. The second promise he, he gives is, I will make nations of you. Notice that the word nation is plural and not singular. While Ishmael was not God's covenant offspring, he still promised to bless Ishmael and his descendants because of Abram. We see that when he's talking to Hagar. And then we see this name change take place. As a way of making his, this promise more personal for Abram, the Lord changes his name. Abram means exalted father. So the A-B, the Ab, uh, it means father, and then the Ram is to be high. So exalted father. Abraham sounds like father of a multitude. Again, Abe or Ab is father, and Ham or Haman means crowd. So it's like, it sounds like father of a multitude. And so the Lord changes Abram's name to reflect the, fa- the fact that the promise is already accomplished. In the Lord's mind and his reality, Isaac is already born, and he and Ishmael have had multiple offspring and descendants. And so as we continue, as we're looking at this, uh, the, verse 5 says, For I have made you a father of many nations. The verb made here in, in verse 5 is in the perfect tense in the Hebrew, which simply means that it's an act that's already completed. In English, it's past time. He says, I have made you a father of many nations. It's completed in God's mind. It's done. And the fact that Abram will be the father of many nations is, com- is a completed act for the Lord. The Lord is all-knowing and all-powerful, so he's able to say this with confidence. It's done. It's accomplished. Jay Walker, founder of and vice chairman of Priceline.com, says this, You have to believe. In the internet world, people like to talk, but very few truly believe. If, for example, you really believe that you're going to double your business every year, then you've got to hire ahead of the curve. That's why last year when we were doing maybe uh, $400,000 worth of business each week, we recruited Rick Braddock, the former president of Citicorp and a top-tier leader. Today we're doing 10 times as much business as we were then. Hiring Rick for a $20 million business may, may seem overkill right now, but we're going to need him to run a business that will be doing $500 million or $1 billion a year. If you wait until you're actually doing that much business to hire the necessary talent, then you'll be too late. That's the way faith works in the business world. You live today as though your beliefs about the future really will be fulfilled. That's also the way faith works in the spiritual world. We have to believe that it's going to be accomplished, that God has already accomplished that. And that's the way I think about ministry and the growth of the church. When we talk about getting ready for company here, 
It's the idea of thinking and acting like more people are coming, that more people will be here. We have to have the attitude and faith that God has already accomplished this. We're living into that faith. We're simply acting in faith. The Grow Capital campaign is a project and vision that embraces faith in the Lord's ability to build his church. God's the one who builds the church, not us. If we waited until we had two services that were full before we started a capital campaign, we'd be too late, and it wouldn't take faith on our part. So you'd be like, okay, two, two services, and, and every pew is filled, and we have all this money coming in. We didn't have to trust God for that. We didn't have to have faith. We're doing it now in faith, trusting that God's going to accomplish this because I want God to get the glory for it, not us. I, want, I don't want us to do it in our own power. You know, I think about that with the, with the tax debt, too. It's like the, that came after we started the capital campaign. We didn't know that was coming, but we still have to trust God in faith. And so I want to encourage us to think and act like God has already built Idaville Church to the point where we need a nearly 300-seat sanctuary. We need to live in that attitude. We need to live in the attitude that company is coming. More people are going to be here, and we're going to have an opportunity to minister to them, to help them grow in their faith. <clears throat> and so Abraham is going to be fruitful and have innumerable, innumerable descendants, and some of those descendants will be kings. That's the next promise that we see here. Kings will come from you. We know that kings did come from Abraham's line. The ones we're most familiar with are David and Solomon, but there's a bunch more listed in the Old Testament. This, again, was not necessarily God's plan for the Israelites, the Israelites wanted a king like all the other nations around them. Samuel was displeased with this request, but, but prayed to the Lord for his wisdom and guidance. He said, God, I don't know what to do in this situation. And here's the Lord's response to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. So this wasn't a part of God's plan. He didn't want them to be like all the other nations. He wanted them to be set apart and look to him as their king. But they were rejecting that. And it's amazing to see how God's omniscience, his all-knowing is at work prior to actual events happening. He's foretelling the future. It's not a bright future <laughs> with all these kings because most of them were evil. Just a handful of them were real good. But he's foretelling the future and and the covenant that the Lord's making with Abraham is an everlasting covenant both for his descendants and for the land. The next promise is this, I will establish my covenant with you. It's an everlasting covenant. God is promising to be Abraham's God forever. He's also promising to be the God of Abraham's descendants forever. We should be overjoyed by this everlasting covenant. Do you realize what it means for us today? God is our God. And God will be the God of our descendants forever. Isn't that great? That's an incredible promise and truth that we can hold on to. He is our God. The same God that was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You hear that all throughout Scripture. God also promised to give the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants as an everlasting possession. The whole land of Canaan will be an everlasting possession for them. Abraham would not realize uh, this in his lifetime he would remain an alien in Canaan. It wouldn't be until after the exodus from Egypt that God would fulfill his, this promise to Abraham's descendants. 
Wearsby says this, This land is a battleground today and always will be until the Lord returns to reign. But as far as God's covenant is concerned, the land belongs to Israel. So if there's this question about, should it go to you know, you know, the Jews or should it go to the Palestinians, it, it belongs to the Jews. Period. It's God's covenant. And this is why we must stand with Israel. We must stand with Israel. God keeps his promises to Abraham, doesn't he? He was faithful. God made nations from him. Kings came from him. God is still the God of his descendants, and Canaan is still the land where Abraham's descendants live. And that just leads us to the fourth principle today, that we can trust God to keep his promises to us. Aren't you glad? He keeps every promise. This should give us hope and joy and peace. Now, God outlined his part in the covenant he was making, but he also outlined Abraham and his descendants' part. That's verses 9 to 14. Would you look at those verses with me, if you would? Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from this people. He has broken my covenant. And so we see again this everlasting covenant. The covenant act that God was requiring for Abraham and his descendants was to continue from generation to generation. We see it in verses 9, 10, and 12. It was to be this everlasting covenant we see in verse 13b. Now we know that this covenant act is not required today, so how does that work? Well, I like what Walton says. The implications of the terminology is that these agreements are not temporary, not stopgap, nor are they on a trial basis. They are permanent in the sense that no other alternative arrangement to serve that purpose is envisioned. This does not mean that the purpose it serves will never be obsolete. Circumcision, for example, became obsolete even though it was designated here as a covenant olam, which is just the Hebrew word for everlasting. Likewise, the Aaronic covenant for priesthood became obsolete even though it was designated a priesthood Olam, everlasting. So we think about that. It's like the, the everlasting covenant of circumcision, not valid today. The, uh, this priesthood, Jesus transformed that when he died on the cross. And the veil was torn from top to bottom. And the holy of holies was open to all. That we could now come to God on our own. We didn't have to go through a priest anymore. I think about the sacrificial system. It's non-existent today. We don't have to take a perfect lamb and bring it to church every Sunday, right? To cover over our sins. <laughs> Aren't you glad? Whew. We don't have to do those things anymore we, because of Jesus. He was the perfect lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he died on the cross for us. So the covenant that the Lord was requiring of Abraham and his descendants was circumcision. It was a covenant in the flesh. It's the cutting of the foreskin from around the male reproductive organ. 
circumcision was being practiced in the ancient Near East already. This wasn't new, especially in Canaan, where Abraham was now living. It was used as a rite of passage into manhood, so around puberty, age 13. Ishmael's 13. Don't let that slip by. It was also used as a rite of passage into marriage, becoming a part of the wife's family. Sometimes it required circumcision. Now, it was unheard of in Mesopotamia, which is where Abraham had been called from, right? Like over Mesopotamia, further east, they didn't do this. They didn't practice circumcision. So Abraham had never seen it practiced, but was probably aware of its use by those who lived around him in Canaan. God was taking a social practice and making it something holy to be set apart. Who was included in this circumcision covenant? It was every male in Abraham's household. Those born in the household, those bought with money from a foreigner. And from this point on, every male child born in his household, whether slave or free, would need to be circumcised on the eighth day. And there were consequences for not following this covenant. We see it in verse 14. Any male who was not circumcised would be cut off from his people. And there's a play on words here. If a male had not undergone circumcision, cutting with a knife, they, they would be cut off from God's people. Hamilton puts it this way. Here's the choice. Be cut or be cut off. Any male who refused to be circumcised would be ostracized and separated from the community, and it would be as though they had died. Now, Wolk, he says this, God will sever the disloyal descendant from the covenant community and from its benefits of blessing and life. We see how serious God was about this everlasting covenant in a story about Moses. In a narrative here about Moses, listen to it from Exodus chapter 4, verse 24 to 26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said, so the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Moses hadn't, hadn't kept up with the everlasting covenant, almost lost his life as a result. So, again, Moses was going to be killed for not obeying the everlasting covenant of circumcision. How does this everlasting covenant apply to us today? Aren't you glad that circumcision of the flesh is no longer required to be in a covenant relationship with God? God transformed the circumcision covenant through Jesus Christ. We see now the circumcision of the heart that determines whether or not we're in a covenant relationship with God. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 to 12 tell us this, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Paul, writing then to the Roman believers, chapter 2, verses 28 to 29, tells us this, A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. And then in Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verse 6, 
we see this. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. It's been transformed. There's two new covenant signs of a relationship with God. Baptism is one of them. Jesus modeled that for us. Not that he needed to, but he modeled it for us. And the second one is the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. And that leads us to principle five today. God is pleased when we are completely devoted to him in a covenant relationship. And we do that by living single-hearted lives of integrity before him. This shows that we have made the cut, that we have had our hearts circumcised. And so where are you today with being completely devoted to the Lord in a covenant relationship? Have you been straying from the Lord? Have you been choosing the things of this world over him? Have you been choosing human relationships over a divine relationship? Have you been choosing money, possessions, or something else over God? Maybe this fi- or the third next step is for you today, and that's to choose to be completely devoted to the Lord by living a single-hearted life of integrity. Maybe you're here today, and you've never been in, in any kind of relationship with the Lord. <clears throat> you've never been in a covenant relationship with Him. And maybe you're ready. I just want to share with you how that can take place. You see, the amazing thing is is that we're all sinners. God's word tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't reach the perfection of God because of the sin in our lives. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, but I'm a a good person. I've I've done a lot of good things. That doesn't matter. God says we're all sinners. And you're like, well... Still, I'm a pretty good person. I think God will let me into heaven. And he says, that's not true. And, and I hate to burst your bubble today, but, but you're not a good person. Because all of us have probably lied at some point in our lives. That's one of the Ten Commandments. All of us have probably taken something that doesn't belong to us, even if it was something small. That's called stealing, and that's one of the commandments. All of us have maybe used God's name as a cuss word at some point in our lives. We haven't honored his name. That's one of the Ten Commandments. You're going, I'm pretty good with the whole no, uh, you know, no adultery, no, no murder. But, but Jesus kind of elevated that for us in the New Testament. He said, if you, re- if you just re- regard iniquity or anger in your heart, if you have bitterness towards a brother or a sister, it's as though you've killed them. It's as though you murdered them. That's another commandment. And then, and then Jesus says, if you look at, at a woman with lust, it's as though you've committed adultery with her. That's the, a fifth commandment. And then God's word tells us that if we just fail at one, it's as though we failed at all of them. We've broken all of them. So we're not good people. And God says in Romans 6.23 uh, that the wages of sin is death. What we earn or deserve for our sin is to be separated from God for eternity. It's not a physical death because none of us would be here because we're all sinners. We just established that. It's a spiritual death. It's a separation from God. We can't be where he's at because of that darkness of sin. But I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He talks about God's love for us. He says that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were just in this life of sin, going our own way, uh, 
in a rebellion against God, God was like, I still love you. I love you so much that I sent Jesus to die for your sins. The sins that you did yesterday, the ones you'll do today, the ones you do in the future. I died for all those sins. Out of my great love, I've made a way for you to be in relationship with me, to be in a covenant relationship with me. And then we see God's plan to save us. We see it in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. This is what God's word says. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And maybe you're ready to take that step today. That's the final next step on the back of your communication card. That's to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead and be saved. Man, if you're making that decision today for the very first time, please mark all of your information on your communication card. I want to talk to you. It's an incredible decision you're making today. As we review just a couple of questions, do you need to reaffirm your belief in God's power to know everything and do anything? Are you ready to fall face down before the Lord and worship when he speaks to you? Do you recognize that you need to be completely devoted to the Lord by living a single-hearted life of integrity? And are you ready to be saved today? Even within the church, we can struggle to believe God's power to know everything and do anything. We need to trust him today to do the miraculous. We need to fall face down before the Lord and worship when, we, when he speaks to us. And perhaps he's spoken to you today and you need to come forward and fall face down. And I encourage you to do that as the worship team leads us in the closing song. Maybe you're here and you're just like, I need to reaffirm my belief in God's power that he can do anything. He knows everything and you just need to come and fall face down before him today and reaffirm that. Maybe you need to come and just fall face down and worship because he's spoken to you today or this week. Maybe you need to come and fall face down because you have not been living a single-hearted life of integrity and you're saying, I'm going to do that. I'm going to begin today. Or maybe you're saying, I'm coming and falling face down because I'm turning my life over to Jesus for the very first time. And so, I, as I said, as the worship team leads us, let me just close our time in prayer. And as the worship team leads us, you come and you deal with the Lord, however he's speaking to your heart today. And so, Lord, we just come to you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that's in your word. We thank you for how you have done the miraculous. And that, Lord, you speak things as though they are already accomplished. And we just claim that promise today. <clears throat> Lord, we pray for those that have a decision that they need to make today, that they need to fall face down before you. I pray that they wouldn't hold back. I pray that uh, the grip that they have on the, on the seat in front of them would be loosed by your Holy Spirit, that they might come and do the work that needs to be done. And so, Lord, we just commit ourselves to you. We thank you that we are your covenant people, that we can be in relationship with you because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.